Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. When I started reading Civil War history over 50 years ago, textbooks wrote that the war had cost over 600,000 lives. Since then, more sophisticated historical techniques have revised that number upward to above 700,000, and that number may not be done growing because now historians are looking at the war's toll in terms of mental as well as physical injuries. One of the historians doing that is Dylan J. Carroll, author of Invisible Wounds, Mental Illness, and Civil War Soldiers. We'll talk with Professor Carroll tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from Brewster Building, third floor, East Carolina University, Greenville, North Carolina, but as always, not representing the university, even though it's Pirate Giving Day, I may be donating to the university today, but not speaking for them. And likewise, my guest speaks only for himself, as we always do here. Well, it is the uh, third show, second, uh, what is it, third show of the month of, of, let's get it right, of March 2023, uh, because we had spring break in there, so we missed maybe it's i don't know how many shows we've done this month i've lost track of time it's uh, march 22nd how about that 2023 and to tie up a loose end from last week's announcements i am thrilled and delighted to announce that my daughter caroline successfully uh matched i think i said that it was successful and now we know that she's going to be specializing in OBGYN at uh University of South Carolina's location in Greenville, South Carolina. That's the other Greenville. Uh, it was one of her top choices. Uh, she's happy. Uh, her mother and I are happy and proud and relieved. Uh, I appreciate all the good wishes sent uh, from you listeners, those especially who are in the medical field or have relatives there and 
knew just how, how stressful the, the matching process is. For those who are not in the field, the idea that uh, medical school graduates who want to become residents uh, have to get matched up with hospitals that have residencies to fill and both sides make a list of who they want to hire and where they want to work and then this algorithm matches them together. But I learned in only afterwards that only 72% of this year's OBGYN residents, uh, students, got matched. Uh, the other 28% did not get jobs. Uh, conversely, in emergency medicine, uh, every student who wanted to get placed pretty much did. Uh, but there were a number of... Uh, a uh, number of jobs that didn't get filled, residencies that didn't get filled. I don't know what happens. Do the OBGYN students agree to become emergency med people? I'm, I'm not sure how that works, but uh, somehow well, we get doctors out of all this. And, and very happy to say my daughter will be doing the kind of work she wants to do. So it's been a, a good week here at Civil War Talk Radio. It's been a good week on campus, ECU baseball team is rolling along. I went to a game for the first time this season on last Sunday, and while it was a good game, excellent pitching, Pirates won uh, by a wide margin, uh, one home run was hit, but the best play of the game, one of the Pirate batters laid down a bunt that was, you couldn't use it for a, a, a clinic film any better, rolled down the third base line, then turned to the left, because it had a lot of spin on it, started rolling to the uh, to the foul line. Third baseman knew he couldn't make a play, just stopped and hoped it would roll out, roll foul. And it stopped four inches short of the line and just sat there in the sand, taunting him. Fair ball, base hit. Uh, seeing a well-executed bunt makes makes an old, old-school fan happy. Uh, other things that make me happy are uh, seeing young people interested in history. And I got to do that this morning. It's... It was our National History Day competition here in Greenville, uh, where students from high schools and uh, middle schools all across eastern North Carolina came to show their history stuff here uh, in front of judges uh, taken from the faculty and the graduate students. Uh, I judged the category of junior exhibits, so as junior group exhibits, so groups of middle schoolers who had put together a tabletop exhibit, something like uh, a science fair, basically, for history students. Other students, though, did live performances or wrote papers or made documentaries online or created websites. There are all kinds of categories. Uh, and as the, the judging uh, advisor said in our pre-show meeting when, when she was giving us advice on judging, said some of these exhibits or, or performances will stun you with their research and create creativity and others will just stun you and indeed uh, some of them were pretty basic i have to say but the best ones were were, were very good and and phil filled me with hope that uh, we have good history students coming up on the other side of the ledger if middle schoolers taking on history did all right in the past week uh, the north carolina legislature tried its hand at history this past week and uh, the results were mixed. They, they have passed a bill here in this state that would require every college graduate uh, in the UNC state college system and community college system to take at least three credit hours, that's one course, in U.S. history. Now that 
I think is wonderful. That would help our department so much. We'd get credit hours beyond belief. Uh, it'd be wonderful. But the uh, the Solons, the wise uh, thinkers in Raleigh, did not stop there. They then went on to tell us what kind of U.S. history course it has to be. Uh, it has to include a full reading of these documents, the Constitution, five essays from the Federalist Papers, the Emancipation Proclamation, the Gettysburg Address, and uh, King's letter from Birmingham Jail. Now, every university in North Carolina teaches U.S. history in a two-course sequence, uh, breaking roughly around Reconstruction. None of them include both, say, uh, the Gettysburg Address and the letter from Birmingham Jail and the Constitution and the Federalist Papers and so on. So we would have to revise our curriculum somewhat dramatically or create a new course. Uh, and yeah, we could do that. That's not the worst of it. Uh, the bigger problem is it's very clear from this selection that the people who voted for this bill have never actually read most of the documents that they're talking about. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, for example, you listening to this show, being Civil War enthusiasts, I would guess the percentage of listeners who have actually read the, the proclamation all the way through is still in the zero category, or maybe 2%, let's say, to give credit for those who, who have pursued it. Uh, we read it out loud in uh, an advanced Civil War class this past week. And I had a student read it out loud. We only got halfway through the first sentence, which takes up most of the first page of the document, uh, before we had began discussing why Lincoln wrote this in in a style that was described at the time by Karl Marx as the kind of document one pettifogging lawyer sends to another. Uh, it's an unreadable document. Lincoln wrote it to be an unreadable document. That's what we discussed in class. Why did he choose to, to, to use such technical and uninteresting and almost incomprehensible language? Uh, the legislators who voted for this bill imagine that the Emancipation Proclamation is full of words like uh, freedom and, and equality, and, and uh, it, it's a glorious document like the Gettysburg Address, but they've obviously never read it. It's nothing like that. And... Uh, not that students shouldn't be familiar with what the proclamation does, but actually reading it, it, it's, it just shows they don't know quite what they're talking about. Uh, nonetheless, if, if we have to teach such a course, we will absolutely make the best of it. I'm going to guess most people who, who wrote that bill or signed it have not read the entire Constitution either. Um, you know, They've got no problem with the First Amendment or the Second Amendment, but ask them about the Third Amendment. Uh, many will not even know what it is. You will, listening to the show, but many of them will not. Well, enough bashing on them. Let's move on quickly to what we're going to see next week on the show. Uh, John M. Satcher, whose name I may be mispronouncing, will talk to us about Confederate conscription. On the 5th of April, Bruce Chadwick has a book called The Cannon's Roar, Fort Sumter and the Start of the Civil War and Oral History. That's the first question. How do you do that? Uh, on the 12th of April, Faye Yarbrough, Choctaw Confederates, the American Civil War in Indian Country. And on the 19th, Harold Holzer, a longtime friend of the show, comes back uh, for our 600th episode of Civil War Talk Radio. 
if you've been donating to the show all along, if you're a person who, who has a continuing donation going and you send, you know, $5 a month, thank you so much for helping make this all possible. Much appreciated. Um, to those of you who are not doing so, I say it is time to open your checkbooks, uh, as I did today for uh, ECU giving. I donated to the Dudley Scholarship Fund that many of you have donated to by sending money here. I pass it along there. Uh, go to www.impedimentsofwar.org, click on the donation button, connect you to PayPal, and donate $30. Remember, you will get in exchange for your $30 donation, access to all 600 episodes of Civil War Talk Radio. Alternatively, you can enroll in our Deadbeat plan and get all 600 episodes for nothing, uh, but surely you would rather be more like the immortals that Tennyson described in his poem about the 600 episodes uh, with that classic stanza, half a show, half a show, half a show onward all at Impediments of War, episodes 600. The listeners welcome to make reply. There's always to reason why. There's also to do and donate a mere 30 bucks for episodes 600. Be part of the immortal 600. Send your money here. Uh, but don't deduct it on your taxes. As always, you know that's not going to work. And finally, let's just bring down the hammer. If no new donations are received before next week's show, I will recite the entirety of Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner with a don bad donation request parody stanza at the end. Uh, you can avoid that and earn the thanks of all your fellow listeners by clicking that button. Well, let's move on and talk with our guest tonight, Professor Dylan J. Carroll, author of Invisible Wounds, Mental Illness, and Civil War Soldiers. Dr. Carroll, are you there? Yes, I am here. Thank you for having me. Well, welcome to the show. Good to have you here. And uh, congratulations, first of all. I understand you have a new uh, arrival in your family a few months ago. Yes, uh, my wife and I welcomed our, our son, uh, Hudson, uh, who, who joined us in November, on November 6th. And uh, so he's about four months old. So if, if anyone hears what sounds like a crying baby, uh, it is a crying baby. So um yeah, but we're we're thrilled and uh, exhausted and overjoyed and all that all that stuff. Well, well, well really, congratulations! It's a wonderful thing. Uh, you have so many great moments ahead, uh, and 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 so many moments of exhaustion or frustration. I, I'm here <laughs> to say, it, you know, it, you as I said about my older daughter becoming a, a medical resident. If you can just hang in there for you know 25 years or so things start to turn around and uh, uh, you, you get some, some return for your investment. But right, it really, it, it, it's a wonderful thing, and that's so good. Congratulations. So um, you. are you uh, teaching these days? What, what's your day job when you're not writing uh, books like this one? Yes, sir. I teach at uh, Butte College, which is a California community college um, in Butte County. Now your your Skype address says New York. Uh, are you are you in California or are you in New York? I'm in California. Yeah, yeah. I haven't oh, okay. I haven't been on Skype for a long time, so I haven't updated <laughs> obviously my my Skype information. But uh, yeah, I live in California now, um, and uh, I actually live in Sacramento. 
Uh, but I work at, at Butte College, which is a, a California community college um, up north in Butte County. I used to live in New York. I lived in New York for uh, five or six years. I, I ask the question because so many people do teach remotely nowadays that it's not impossible you could live in New York and teach in California. Good point. Yeah. Uh, so, so just curious. Do you have National History Day in California? Uh. We have a form of it. Um, uh, we do have a history day, and we do kind of have similar competitions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not 100% familiar with it, uh, which is, you know, not a good look for me. I should, <laughs> I should become more familiar with that. But, uh, uh, yeah, we do have something of the sort. Well, so um, this book, I, which I very much enjoyed reading this week, uh, it's published by LSU Press. Uh, it, it's uh, one of the best, you know, most reputable uh, Civil War University presses. Uh, was this originally a dissertation? Yes, it was. Um, and uh, but before I get into that, I should say congrats mm. to your daughter for matching. That's exciting. It's a big deal. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. In- also an interesting time to go into uh, the OB field with uh, – Everything that's going on. It, it certainly um, is that, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so this started as, as a PhD dissertation. Um, I went to the University of Georgia and got my uh, PhD in history from there and worked with uh, Dr. Stephen Berry. And um, it started there um, mm. in a different form, but, uh, but yeah, that's where it began. Well, and l- listeners, you've you know, we, you've, you've heard us talking with Stephen Barry in the past. He's been on a couple times. Uh, uh, one of the foremost uh, proponents of, of what some call the, the dark turn or, or the weirding the war. Uh, bringing out aspects of the Civil War that are less uh, romanticized and less savory. Uh, and this book certainly falls in that dimension. We're already up to our first break, so we're going to take a short break. We'll step away. And we'll come back and we'll get into the details of the book, Invisible Wounds, Mental Illness and Civil War Soldiers. It's by our guest tonight, Dylan Carroll. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Dylan Carroll, author of Invisible Wounds, Mental Illness, and Civil War Soldiers. Uh, Dylan, you have very interesting historiographical uh, discussion early in the book where you point out that this topic really wasn't considered by historians before uh, Eric Dean's book uh, Shook Over Hell, where he, he argues that Civil War soldiers suffered from we what we today identify as PTSD. Uh, it, but you note that that has not gone without challenge, that, that people like Gary Gallagher and others have, have suggested maybe Maybe Civil War soldiers were, were not suffering in the same way. Um, is it legitimate to apply that diagnosis to, uh, to, to Civil War soldiers? Um, I mean, this is what made this, this project so interesting and fun to me, is mm-hmm. you're trying to kind of square a circle, which is, um, you know, in, during the Civil War, it's pre-Freud, and uh, Freud in, in the 1880s and 90s proposes the first idea of a traumatic memory. It's kind of the foundation of post-traumatic stress disorder. So, you know, could Civil War soldiers have uh, something that they didn't even know existed yet? Um, and it, it was sort of a, a fun, almost philosophical experiment to think about and noodle with for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we, we have to be careful, uh, and I tried to be careful in the book. We can't definitively diagnose patients in the past because obviously we can't send the psychiatrist back in time to diagnose them. Um, we don't know a lot of their medical history. Uh, we don't know, uh, a lot of their, you know, family history. So there's a lot of gaps for certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, but knowing what we know, you know, human brain chemistry cannot have changed so significantly in 150 years, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. and I think knowing what we know now, um, I, I don't think the lack of, of certainty should stop us from hazarding a guess, um, and uh, I, I try in the book to stay away from diagnosis in most cases, um, but there's elements of what we now call, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder that we can see in the past, um, particularly evidence of invasive nightmares, flashbacks, and hallucinations of a traumatic event. And that's the signature symptom of what we now call PTSD, these unwanted and invasive nightmares, flashbacks, and hallucinations. And certainly Civil War soldiers and veterans told us about those, um, but also their doctors at asylums uh, told us about those as well. So we have the evidence. Um, 
it's it's a matter of you know trying to carefully filter through that evidence um, and again avoid diagnosis for the most part. Well, let's talk about the the evidence, the sources that I was surprised to learn that uh, the the federal government operated. Uh, essentially a mental asylum, a mental health hospital during the war, which uh, uh, which I gather uh, kept reasonable records that, that helped with this project. Uh, I put reasonable in quotation marks. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, this is something I didn't know before researching this project either. But uh, yes, the federal government had a federal asylum. Um, it was initially called the Government Hospital for the Insane. Um, so they weren't trying to really mint words there. Mm. Uh, but eventually it, it was colloquially known as St. Elizabeth's. Um, but eventually St. Elizabeth's became the actual name, I think, in the early 20th century, because mm. patients were increasingly embarrassed to have to write on letterhead, you know, to their families and friends that said government hospital of the insane. Um, and uh, so eventually, I think by 1916, it becomes known officially as St. Elizabeth's. And it's the first and only federally funded insane asylum um, in, in Washington, D.C., in, in, uh, across the, across the uh, Anacostia River from uh, the District of Columbia. And the records are at the National Archives in D.C., uh, but um, reasonable, uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> mm. They are a mess. Um, they're a bunch of the records before um, the 1880s and 90s were, were thrown out or destroyed. Um, and... And they don't, they're so vast, it's a, it's a huge repository of records that the archive hasn't carefully um, cataloged all of them. And so you will make requests, and sometimes mm -hmm. the folder will come back, you know, stock full with papers, and sometimes it'll come back uh, bare and empty. And you just don't know, it's a total guessing game. Um, wow. And so it's, it's a, it was a big time suck to slog through those records and Try and try and find you know what was there and and what wasn't and uh, just sift through you know um, whatever the the archives had on hand. So in uh, well, you point out when when Abraham Lincoln looks out the window of the White House and says to Mary, who's been mourning for the loss of, of uh, her son Willie uh, for for a year, and says, you know, Mother, you must get better, or we'll have to send you over there. I'd always thought that was either metaphorical or some private hospital, and and this was it. It was St. Elizabeth's he's pointing at. Um, yeah, that that uh, I think that story is kind of alleged. We don't know if it's a true a hundred percent accurate, but yeah, if if that did happen, it was St. Elizabeth that um, old Abe was pointing to and and wow. uh, and threatening his his distraught wife with um, uh, commitment. Now in. In the first chapter, you you sort of set the stage by portraying the horrors that soldiers, especially federal soldiers, are subjected to during the war. Uh, you know the, the the fatigue, the bad food, and most of all the the horrors of battle. Uh, I guess before we go any further, I'll say, that, and this is totally a side note, uh, it's sort of a side paragraph. You you point out that casualties are high because of the 
invention of the rifled musket and uh, I, I'm, I'm at war with that old school interpretation that the technology of the rifled musket had much to do with it. Um, I, I would go with Earl Hess and others on that. But that's not central to your thesis. I want to go on to your thesis. Um, you you say that well, you say you, obviously soldiers are, are going to be tormented by these experiences, but then almost immediately you make an interesting counterpoint that African American soldiers were not nearly as subject to mental breakdown from combat as as white Northern soldiers. How how did you discover that, and and why what would that be so? Yeah. Um... The uh, the experience of combat, I argue, was you know a series of of holistic traumas. Um, mm-hmm. we, we often focus on combat, but for Civil War soldiers, I think the holistic experience could be traumatic, which included, as you said, fatigue, mm-hmm. uh, poor food, uh, interactions with disease, um, mm-hmm. crushing loneliness and boredom, and uh, and then of course the horror of combat. Um, the experience, of course, is radically different for black soldiers. Uh, African-American soldiers, most of them aren't allowed to enlist until 1863. Uh, mm-hmm. there, were, there were units and there were soldiers who did clandestinely enlist in 1862 in, in groups like Hunter's Regiment and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the vast majority, they don't enlist until later. And uh, I argue... Uh, from, you know, records from speeches from people like Prince Rivers, who's a remarkable figure, uh, a, a former slave in South Carolina who escapes uh, his enslaver's grasp and joins Hunter's Regiment, which then becomes the 1st South Carolina, which then becomes the 33rd USCT. And he gives speeches basically saying, you know, this is, our, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, this is our chance. You know, this is our time. And, and if we meet our enslaver's on the battlefield, we're going to take this opportunity to run a bayonet through them. And, uh, you know, African-American soldiers, the war is less ambiguous for them uh, because it is a war to destroy slavery. And it's an opportunity that um, that African-American soldiers like Prince Rivers say, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And, and Rivers at one point says, you know, if our fathers, again, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, mm-hmm. if our fathers had this chance that we have, we might never have been slaves. And um, and so this is a, a remarkable opportunity for many of them. Uh, you know, that being said, it's not perfect for black soldiers. And mm-hmm. uh, there are there are you know, there are incidents of African-American soldiers who are traumatized by combat or who um Many of them don't find the war to be a perfect or great experience. Um, they suffer horrifically with disease uh, in, in rates, uh, we think, much higher than white soldiers. Um, they deal with discrimination in a way that white soldiers don't. Mm-hmm. So it's not perfect, but for many of them, it is this unprecedented opportunity to 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 strike at the slave South and to uh, destroy slavery, which makes many of them much more enthusiastic participants, um, you know, really uh, curious and eager to see combat, to try and do their part. So it's a catharsis rather than a, a trauma. That they're actually 
they have this opportunity to do do what they've always wanted to do to, to strike back. It, 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 yeah, for some of them, for someone like Prince Rivers, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's 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 nuanced and complex, and sure, it, it should be said that a lot of black soldiers didn't find the experience cathartic, um, mm-hmm. and, and an estimated twelve thousand of them deserted. Uh, before the war was over, and certainly they didn't find the experience cathartic, um, well, but uh, for some they did. Well, you mentioned desertion, and that brings up another point you make, which is that soldiers, uh, at, primarily you're talking about uh, white federal soldiers, but not exclusively, uh, they they deal, they, they, they self-treat the medical, uh, the, the mental trauma they're suffering, uh, and you suggest that straggling, that uh, uh, deserting temporarily is one way. This is like, like K.T. Shively's argument about self-care by, by straggling. Uh, so, so you're saying soldiers who felt their minds giving way just, just walk away from it? Yeah, in part. Um, Mm -hmm. I came to this argument when I was reading the published letters of James Williams, who's an Alabama soldier. And uh, Williams was really terribly traumatized by the Battle of Shiloh. And at one point he writes his his wife, quote, I've had great and exciting times at night with my dreams since the battle. Some of them are tragedies and frighten me more than the fight ever did when I was awake. And uh, after I read that, I was, you know, nearly fell out of my chair. And I thought, this is a guy who's being traumatized by his memories of Shiloh. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't end up in an an asylum. He doesn't seem, you know, crushed by this memory. And one of the arguments I made as I eventually came to was he turns to religion. Uh, Mm. And what's remarkable about Williams is he enters the war basically an atheist. Um, And then after the Battle of Shiloh, he he talks about uh, his growing faith and religiosity, and uh, he wrote his wife as he contemplated future battles after Shiloh and said, quote, as for myself, I feel that I will again be protected by him who guides every little unseen missile. And after that, I became, my radar kind of went up for, mm-hmm. for incidents of maybe where uh, Civil War soldiers might have been able to self-soothe. And then that was given kind of a more theoretical structure when I read Nature's Civil War by, by Katie Shively Meyer, in which um, she argued that straggling or, or illegally leaving the lines was a way that Civil War soldiers coped with the war's health challenges. And uh, I found this remarkable set of letters um, from a soldier named um, uh, Joshua Jackson. Mm-hmm. and Oh, no, John Jackson, I'm sorry. And uh, John Jackson was from the 32nd Maine, and he took, play, took part in the Overland Campaign in um, the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse and um, the Battle of Cold Harbor. And then by August, he's you know, writing about uh, basically how he's kind of breaking down. Um, he writes to his parents, um, quote, after each battle, I feel for a few days pretty well played out. But my mind, I think, suffers more of the two than my body, even though I get very tired and feel almost exhausted. And um, by August, he he basically what we might describe as goes AWOL. He um, leaves the front lines. He straggles his way to a hospital. 
um, writing his family that he's, you know, at a hospital, he's not sick or injured, but he just needed a few days to rest. And a few days turns into a few weeks and a few weeks turns into a few months. And uh, I don't know how he talked his way into a hospital or talked his way into staying there, but he did. Um, And then by November, he returns to the ranks, sort of recharged, um, Mm -hmm. you know, with his spirit sort of uh, buoyed. And and he says, quote, I begin to feel in a hurry to be with the boys. It it almost seems as if I was going home. And uh, he does this, I think, very self-evident coping mechanism, which is he gets away from the front lines and gets a break, Um, gets away from battles, gets. Uh, some hot meals, get some rest, and then is able to to return sort of recharged. Yeah, as I was reading it, I was thinking about, I think it's Soderbergh's book on the, the Overland Campaign and then the, the conversion to trench warfare for the Army of the Potomac, where he finds an uptick in the Army's morale after when trench warfare starts at Petersburg. You know, we associate trench warfare with all the horrors of World War One. But he found that the that it was actually that day to day that you described very eloquently in your book the the constant marching and fighting through the overland campaign that was incredibly stressful. And when they got to stay in one place and sleep and even if in a trench, at least be out of the line of fire for a while, uh, they their morale improved. Uh, whether their mental health improved is, is not the topic of his book, but but it seems consistent with what you're describing here for uh, for the soldier you described. Uh, you made a point about religion, and uh, you compare that to modern cognitive behavior therapy. Uh, I, I want to ask you about that, uh, but we're going to take another short break, find out what cognitive behavior therapy is. Uh, from our guest tonight, he is Dylan Carroll, author of Invisible Wounds, Mental Illness and Civil War Soldiers. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. 
That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Dylan Carroll, author of Invisible Wounds, Mental Illness, and Civil War Soldiers. And Dylan, you mentioned uh, the soldier who, after Shiloh, went from being uh, atheistic to uh, to a religious believer. We've all heard the cliche, there are no atheists in foxholes. But you <laughs> suggest that there, there's a co- comparison here to uh, to modern uh, CBT or cognitive behavior therapy. Uh, what what is that? Um, cognitive behavioral therapy is um, a new therapeutic practice, and it essentially is kind of a what's described as a learned optimism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, patients are taught to reframe. Uh, you know, environmental stimuli that's maybe negative by learning adaptive reactions. And it, and it sort of helps patients rewire, in a way, new uh, neurological uh, pathways to deal with a challenging event. So, for instance, for insomnia, you know, patients struggling with insomnia who might go to CBT um, will be taught, you know, to really uh, learn a almost like mantra that they'll um, tell themselves that if they can't sleep that night, like they're going to be okay. You know, you can mm-hmm. live with, with low sleep and you tell yourself that over and over again. And then one day you start to believe it. And then the, the negative sleep thoughts about the potential of insomnia begin to hold less and less power. And then, you know what, you end up starting to sleep a little bit better. Um, and it's sort of like a, a, a little bit of a learned optimism, the, the power of positive thinking, you might call it. So, um, so in the Civil War case, then, believing that, that God is watching over you and where every bullet flies, he knows about it, that helps these soldiers cope. That's right. I mean, certainly in the case, I think, of James Williams, who, who mm-hmm. gives us a bunch of wonderful letters narrating this experience for him. And, and as you said, he starts the war basically almost an atheist. He wrote his wife from camp in 1861 about psalm about singers who were singing in camp, and he describes them as, quote, making night hideous with their horrid nasal twang, butchering bad music. <laughs> And then he goes on to say, if it had not been for them, the psalm singers, the churchgoers, I would never have been soldiering here, almost blaming, you know, the church and religious people. Um, He goes on to say, if I had to go with a few men on a dangerous expedition tonight, I'd rather take an old granny than any of them, meaning churchgoers and psalm singers. Mm -hmm. um, And he says, give me a jolly good sinner to stand by me when the hour of danger comes. And so he's not particularly warm to the church and to religion when, when the war begins. But then mm-hmm. Shiloh is this horrific experience for him that's almost incomprehensible and, and seems to really leave a scar on his mind. And uh, I argue that he becomes religious as sort of a coping mechanism. And he begins to believe that, um, you know, the war was in part challenging for many Civil War soldiers like James Williams because it was so chaotic. They expected war to be ordered, and they expected the courageous would be rewarded and the cowardly would be punished. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case. You know, no. it's chaotic. You can't see, you can't breathe, you can't hear. Uh, you know, your, your heart, your blood's pounding, what feels like in your ears. 
um, sweats pouring from your palms. Uh, nothing seems to make sense. And that's sort of, you know, really challenging and traumatic for some of them. And for Williams, I argue, he turns to religion and says, you know, yeah, the war may have seemed chaotic, but actually it wasn't because God controls everything. Um, and, and he said at one point, he wrote to his wife, quote, the God who shielded me before yet watches over us all. Um, and he came to believe, I argue, that that uh, God came to watch him and and, and protect him. And, uh, you know, by kind of eventually beginning to tell himself this, write his wife this, he eventually came to believe it. And it was sort of a learned optimism for him in, in, in perhaps maybe a similar way that something like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, mm. might be today for us. And eventually, um, by the summer of 1862, he's writing to his wife that he's ready to, to go back into combat saying, quote, I've had a taste of danger and uncertainty, and now I long for its excitement. I want to be moving, to be doing. It would be music to hear the rapid rattle of the musketry or the sharp report of the picket man's rifle again. And he's sort of, you know, clanging his sword on his shield and, and ready, to, ready to go um, wow. and saying, you know, I'm, I'm not worried because God, mm-hmm. God protects me. The, the, the shield of God is literal um, in his mm-hmm. mind. Now, other soldiers use these other methods that you talk about, but what about professionals? That if, if you end up in St. Elizabeth's or in one of the southern state asylums, what, what is the state of mental health care like in terms of professional medicine? What, do they understand why combat is so traumatizing? No, and many of them are actually sort of involved in a national project of sorts and the early uh, reports to the annual reports they give to their boards, uh, they talk about the war as actually having a positive influence on mental health. Um, There's a, there's a great, I think 1862, uh, one of the, one of the superintendents from the Maine insane hospital writes to the board saying, you know, we've had cases go down. We think it's due to the war. And uh, the war having this positive, you know, almost enlivening influence on mental health. Um, but, uh, the superintendent of St. Elizabeth does the same thing, writing that, you know, the war is this actually positive influence on mental health. So, but what did, how ahead, did they think, well, what caused mental illness in their view? Why, what did they think made people uh, break down? Right. So, um, Broadly, uh, they thought there were two major broad causes. Um, Mm -hmm. They thought there were physical causes. So they believed that uh, a really serious case of disease, um, a blow to the head, like a fall from the horse, Mm -hmm. uh, exposure to the elements, um, uh, what they called sunstroke, having Mm -hmm. sun, you know, on your head too long. All these physical causes they thought could cause mental illness. Mm-hmm. And then there was sort of a nebulous, what they called moral causes. They believed mm-hmm. a violation of what they considered the natural order of things could cause mental illness. And, and these included um, alcoholism, what they called intemperance, which they thought could cause mental illness. Uh, they thought chronic masturbation could cause mental illness. Um, they thought impure thoughts or actions, um, marital strife. Uh, overly religious thoughts uh, could all cause mental illness. And um, they had sometimes contradictory thoughts, like 
Um, superintendents at insane asylums increasingly believed that mental illness was hereditary, yet they also believed it was curable. So if something's hereditary, how is it curable? Uh, it's a little bit of a puzzling, almost contradictory thought. Um, but uh, that, that was largely their worldview at the time. Um, the war, I argue, was going to change how some professionals viewed uh, mental health. Uh, uh, but that's how they viewed it in 1861. So, and, and you really, that you come to that in your final chapter. How does the war affect professional views of mental health? The rise of a new discipline, neurology, comes out of the Civil War. And mm -hmm. uh, Silas Weir Mitchell is often kind of called the American father of neurology. Um, he gets his start in neurology treating nerve-damaged Civil War soldiers at Turner's Lane Hospital. And Mitchell and uh, many of his acolytes begin to believe that mental health is not due to moral causes, which they increasingly dismiss as preposterous, preposterous, mm -hmm. excuse me. Um, instead, they argue that mental illness is, is somatic, that it has its damage or uh, its lesions on the nervous system. Mm. Um, and they argue basically there's a physical cause to, to mental illness. It's nerve damage, essentially. Um, Later, Mitchell's going to kind of pathologize the changes of the Gilded Age, arguing that overwork um, from the, the Gilded Age and some of the, the, the drastic changes that people were experiencing, the spread of railroads and telegraph wires everywhere, uh, was causing this kind of epidemic of what, what was then called hysteria. Um, but uh, neurology in America really gets its start on the on the uh, damaged bodies of Civil War soldiers. Uh, you point out that St. Elizabeth doesn't go away at the end of the war. It continues to admit uh, veterans of the war uh, for many years. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I thought it was interesting. You, you suggested that the, the doctors there eventually are, are faced with the evidence. They, they come to recognize that head trauma, uh, if someone gets shot in the head and then has a change of personality, that's not a character flaw. That's a bullet in the head. Uh, and, and that there must be a physical connection here. Yeah, I think through experience, they, they you know, treating um, uh, injured Civil War soldiers having been struck in the head either with a, with a bullet or um, uh, artillery, you know, they, mm -hmm. they, they began to connect the dots there, which which wasn't uh, too hard, um, you know. It, it was it was it was obvious to many of them. And by the 1890s, the, the then superintendent, um, Dr. William Godding, he gives this really remarkably nuanced and tolerant speech um, mm -hmm. about uh, it, it's a history of Saint Elizabeth and some stories of patients. And he tells a story about a Civil War veteran who was a lieutenant during the war who came home, uh, he described him as, quote, possessed of a devil, if anyone ever was, who mm -hmm. apparently was engaged to be married to several women. None of them, of course, knew it initially. And then everyone finds out that he's this, you know, horribly licentious man who's engaged with multiple women, and uh, everyone's horrified by his behavior. And then eventually he's committed to an asylum where they find out after an autopsy that he'd been shot in the head during the war, and, and some of the projectile was still lodged in his brain. 
And uh, Dr. Godding says, quote, instead of being an outrageously wicked, unprincipled man, he was a martyr to the union cause as much as Abraham Lincoln and more for the ball not only took his life, but destroyed his character. Um, and it's this really remarkably, I think, uh, complex and, and uh, understanding portrait of head trauma. And uh, they, they began to connect the dots and see that injury to the head could result in, in um, uh, psychological and emotional changes. And, and this is happening, that speech you pointed was from the 1890s is at, at the time that, that Freud and, and Genet and others in, in Europe are now starting to relocate mental illness away from being a character mm-hmm. flaw to uh, to an actual disease uh, of the nerves. You know, maybe not exactly mm-hmm. how it's seen today, but uh, but it's quite different. It's physical and not, not moral. Uh, Correct. So, so this is... So we get that, at least in the United States, as, as you say, another fruit of the sacrifice of the Civil War generation is learning where mental illness comes from. Yeah, and, and you know, um, American doctors are really slow to embrace Freud. I mean, mm-hmm. there's American doctors in asylums uh, in the early 20th century who are still thumbing their noses up at, uh, at, um, you know, Freud's ideas about, uh, psychiatry and, and, uh, and, and his sort of location of mental illness. So it, it's a very belated embracement of Freud among American psychiatrists. We have but, just a, yeah. a, I'd say we have just a minute to go, but I want to ask you, this is a very intriguing book. Do you have another project in the hopper? <laughs> Uh, uh, other than, than ago, your, your new son, uh, who's yeah, yeah. obviously your first priority. Uh, everything's on the distant back burner right now with uh, the little dictator, as we call him. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, when I was asked this question a couple of years ago, uh, the answer was um, d- definitively no. And I couldn't even imagine taking up another book project. But actually, just recently, I've thought, I'm beginning to, I'm starting to get the itch, and I'm thinking about, maybe writing more about Prince Rivers, who is this mm. remarkable character in my book, uh, who, I, yes. who I briefly mentioned. Um, yeah. And uh, he, he was uh, enslaved in South Carolina, and the course of his life really embodies the entire Civil War and Reconstruction period. Um, he was a, uh, a, a slave laborer um, in South Carolina. He was a carriage driver for his enslaver. And then uh, uh, fled, as I said, uh, early in the war, uh, joined the U.S. Army, became a, a pretty famous and well-known uh, figure in first the 1st South Carolina and then the 33rd uh, USCT. And then after the war, he returns to Hamburg, um, South Carolina, and becomes an elected uh, official of the Reconstruction government there. And then uh, the Hamburg Massacre. I, I apologize for, for cutting you off. He's a fascinating no, figure. I, but we've run out of time. Uh, it okay, happens always too soon every week. Uh, <laughs> we, we've got to clear the air for the next show. But listeners, you'll want to take a look at Invisible Wounds, Mental Illness, and Civil War Soldiers by our guest tonight, Dylan J. Carroll. Dylan, it was a pleasure talking with you. Likewise. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.